Hello and welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, the Sunday edition for Sunday, June the 6th, 2021. <clears throat> welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green, and today we're going to be reflecting on lessons from 1 Samuel, 2 Corinthians, and then also in the Gospel today. We'll be in the book of Mark. <clears throat> so we're going to be uh, looking at what does it mean to, be, to have a king, and what does it mean for us, ultimately, to bear the weight of glory that we will have. The weight of glory, Paul says, beyond all measure. And it's an eternal weight of glory. And so it it's, has to do with, with who we will be. And so we can begin now by participating in that by doing very simple things like obedience. And so this week has been kind of an odd week, and, and it's, I've had to deal with several different things. Um, still, you know, dealing with our son, Will, uh, the situation with his traumatic brain injury from about 10 weeks ago now. And it's still an odd thing to look back and, and, and imagine almost now because it's, it's so almost wiped out of our minds the time we spent in the hospital with Will in a coma. And it was so vivid and so real and so, you know, everything at that moment. And now it just seems like forever ago because, you know, he's home now and, and we're doing things together. We're, we're out walking a mile several days a week. We're, we're, do, we're going out and having lunch and breakfast together. We're going to the grocery store. And, you know, we're still aware of it. There's still a reminder of it because he has to wear this plastic helmet all the time whenever he's not lying in the bed. But he has recovered so much. And it's just remarkable to see what God has done and to see what it means to take a life and transform that life for that life to end and a new life to begin. And that's kind of what it feels like in all this is, is that we're watching God rebirth Will and we're working on some things um, physically right now uh, with him um, that, that has to do with resetting your body. And so I found this several years ago. Um, and it's called pressing reset. And, and the premise of it is, is, is that, that as you age, things get out of kilter and they don't work the way they should work. And so the, the premise behind pressing reset is to go back and, and essentially to begin to move forward again. And you've got to begin at the beginning. And, and the way that it begins then is to take you back to doing things like lying on your back and breathing through your diaphragm and restoring that connection that can easily get lost from a lifetime of not paying any attention to it. And then it does things like crawling and, and rocking back and forth on your hands and knees and, and rolling over side to side the way you did when you were a baby. And so there's these odd looking exercises that you do but what what it's designed to do is to restore things like your the vestibular system in your body that that allows you to balance well and to to maintain that equilibrium and and then so and then all those other things are restoring the natural movement of the body in order that you can then begin to take control of your body but you're taking control of it by doing these things to reset it to its original state and then you can begin to take control of it and master your body weight in in physical ways and then you can then your body will do what you intend for it to do and you're taking control over your body and there's a really close connection to what it means to to be a disciple of Jesus and to walk with Jesus because it, it's allowing him to be king over your life 
and, and it's to be all parts of your life. And Paul says in Romans that, that that whole thing begins with the renewing of the mind. That's where the transformation begins. Because Paul's warning in, in Romans 12, he, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's exactly what we need to do, and sometimes we don't pay enough attention to that. We don't examine our own attitudes and all that kind of stuff and see if they're in line with Jesus. And I know that that there's a lot of things that I think and even things that I say in normal everyday conversation that that don't line up with how Jesus would have me um, be and think. And, And what I'm specifically thinking about when I say things like that has to do with things like gossip, things like what I say about other people. Or what do I allow other people to say about other people? And those things all matter. And, and it's, I've, I've had a lot of time to think about that over the course of the last week, and, and I've had some conversations with friends about that. And, and one of the things that, that we have to remember always is the stuff that C.S. Lewis wrote in, in when he well, preached, actually, the, a set of sermons called The Weight of Glory. And so he's reflecting on that. So what does that glory mean? And so I want to look at that passage today and kind of focus on that just a little bit and then um, look at the, pull it back and look at everything, though. So in, in that Second Corinthians passage, where we're going to start today, Paul's saying, it's the Second Corinthians 4.13 through uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Just as we have the same spirit of faith that's in accordance with the Scriptures, I believed and so I spoke, which is Psalm 116, verse 10, by the way. We also believe and so we speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Paul's speaking to the Corinthian church there when he says he will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace as it extends to more and more people may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so the the point is is that, that Paul's saying, I do everything I do for your sake. He loves these people that much. They mean that much to him. It's because Jesus means that much to him. And it's because he takes seriously what it means to be created in the image of God. And I think that's one of the things that we need to always remember, that we indeed have been created in the image of God, and we were given dominion over the earth. We're we're not just created in the image of God, though. We have the Holy Spirit breathed into us, and so we are his ambassadors, Paul says in another place. We're his emissaries. Our our goal is to reflect the glory of God into the world. It's that our lives might bear testimony to a king, to a different kind of king, to an eternal king, and, and and we are to be as those who live in his kingdom. While we are in the midst of this life, we are living in his kingdom, and he says that everything I do is to increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And, and so what we have to always remember, and I think what Paul did remember, is, is that, that we're all created in the image of God, and yet those who have been, who have received his Holy Spirit have a special responsibility to, to restore the image of God, the broken image of God that's broken by sin. And so then we are to be his representatives on earth in no less a sense in many ways than Jesus himself was. And we're called to be those kinds of people, a unique people, a kingdom of priests serving our God, a holy nation. And in the midst of this world, we who bear the name of Christ have the responsibility and the joy to proclaim that king and to proclaim the coming of his kingdom. 
And Paul says, so we don't lose heart. No, no, no. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. We don't have those kind of eyes to be able to see those things that are eternal. Those things are now veiled and hidden from our sight. We see through a mirror darkly, Paul says. And so what he means by that is, is that, that because we live in this body that's beset by sin, we can't see clearly in that mirror. And I know increasingly what that's like the older I get in my life. You know? Even with cataract surgery, I'm still like seeing through that mirror pretty darkly sometimes. But it's, it, but Paul is saying is, is that, that this life, he's not saying this life is unimportant. Because he's, what he's saying is this, is this life is an opportunity to give glory to God. And it's an opportunity to see people come to know and accept and receive him as king. We are pointing towards that thing which cannot be seen, but we are the visible representation of our king and his kingdom. And, and that is an important thing for us to remember. But, but Paul says, remember this, that, that whatever you're suffering in this life, it's preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. And too often in the church over the last, I don't know how many years, at least through most of my lifetime, um, the, the message has been a personal, individualistic sense of salvation. We don't see the same for others. We, we proudly proclaim that if I was the only person in the universe, Jesus would have died for me. And we also proclaim that when we come and, and give, do evangelism. We want people to understand how much Jesus loves them as individuals. It's a really important thing. And, and Paul points here to that eternal weight of glory beyond all measure that, that's in store for us. But Paul's not speaking to one person here. He's speaking to the entire congregation of Christians in Corinth. And so how do we see that same glory in our neighbor that we see for ourselves? And, and that's something that Lewis talked about in, in The Eternal Weight of Glory. He says, The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, is to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. And that's a, that's a good point because I think if we understood what it meant to be loved and delighted in by the God who created everything that ever has been and ever will be, if we could imagine that we were delighted in by Him, I think we would feel that weight of His glory on us. We would feel the weight of the, the responsibility. And not just that, but the desire to please him more and more. If we thought that it was possible for us in our lives to, to please God in such a way that it delighted God, then I, I think that if we ever experienced that for one moment, we would feel it as the, the weightiest thing 
in the entire universe, and, and at the same time, the most blissful and desirable thing in the entire universe, and that we would pursue it more and more and more. Well, he does delight in you as you delight in his son, Jesus Christ, as you worship him, as you ascribe glory and honor to him, as you seek to learn and know more and more about him, then you'll find that, that the ultimate desire of your heart, that thing that that Psalm 37.4 promises that he will give us the desires of our heart, then we have a deeper longing than, than can be satisfied with anything on this earth. There's nothing like the satisfaction of, of knowing and, and experiencing the delight of your Heavenly Father. And, and what he says, though, is, is that, that the way that we can do that, there's, there's a very simple way Jesus says that, that we can please the Father, and that is to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so at the same moment that I, that I could experience and imagine God delighting in me, then I have to see the, that, that I'm not a delightful person, right? I, I mean, I, I'm saved by grace to participate in God's kingdom and to, to participate in God's mission of salvation, the mission that, that, that was begun at the cross. didn't end at the cross. No, it was given to me to proclaim the cross, the, to proclaim the resurrection of the dead and the eternal hope that we have. So we're, we're brought into that possibility, but we're not brought into it as individuals. We're brought into it so that we can be part of the kingdom of priests and a holy nation serving our God. And so we have to take that same delight in our brothers. And, and we know that we were wretched, naked, poor, and blind. The cross saved a wretch like me. We all come together and sing that song, Amazing Grace, that, that it saved a wretch like me. Well, if it can save a wretch like me, then how could I look at another human being who doesn't know Jesus and feel anything other than pity for them? No matter how angry they might be, no matter how strident they might be in denouncing him, we still have a responsibility to see the image of God in that person and to see that, that our own wretchedness, but for the Holy Spirit bearing witness to us about Jesus, our own wretchedness is on full display in another and so we can take pity on them that they're under um, a curse and they're under a, a deception, a demonic deception that keeps them from knowing the truth about everything, about who the Creator is, about a loving God, about the truth of who Jesus is, and the truth ultimately about who they are. And we live in a world that's dominated by that right now. And I've noticed a lot of things lately. And I've noticed some things in my own attitudes towards people and to uh, other kinds of things that, that we tend to have bought into an idea that we live in a zero-sum world. In other words, that there's only a certain amount of anything to go around. And that if anybody else has happiness, then it somehow affects me because there's less happiness in the universe for me. If somebody else has more stuff then I'm, I'm envious of that because at some level I believe in a zero-sum game. I believe that whatever they have is something I can't have. And so what we do is when we lose track and lose sight of eternity, when we lose the idea that, that the future belongs to God and that, that in the end all things belong to Him anyway, we can't take anything with us. And so when we, when we lose sight of that and we become two separate camps, like we are in America today, um, well, there, maybe there's three. Maybe there's a moderate group, a right group, and a left group. But, but the problem has been 
that Christians too often haven't been able to, to walk that very successfully. We, we've immersed ourselves too much in politics on either side of this thing, and, and we've turned everything into a zero-sum game. And when you turn everything into a zero-sum game, the problem is you're actually not able to stand back and analyze anything that's affected by that. And so if, if the other team wins, then, then my team necessarily loses. Um, it's because we've decided that life is a zero-sum game. And the reality, what Jesus came to show is, is that no, salvation is open to everybody on this earth. And it should be our joy to go and proclaim that. But, but instead, what we've done is, is we've polarized ourselves into these camps and, and begun to believe this thing. And the problem is that it keeps us from understanding the truth because I can't let that be the truth because they said it. And so it keeps us from understanding the world around us when we, when we do these things. And, and, and we do so by losing sight of eternity. And we do so by making something else ultimate. And when we do all these things, then other people become enemies. And they become Nazis. And they become whatever it is, the epithet that we can hurl at them, then, then that's all they are. And Lewis says, man, you've never even dealt with a mere mortal. He said, it may be, too, may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be daily laid upon my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. He says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he's your Christian neighbor, he's holy in almost the same way, for in him also Christ, very latitat, truly lives. The glorifier and the glorified glory himself is truly hidden. And so it's, it's hidden frequently from us because our eyes are not tuned to the glory of our neighbor. They're tuned to our own glory and they're tuned to this zero-sum game where, where if my neighbor has glory, that means something's let, not there for me to have. And too often that's the way we understand things. And so, so we exalt certain kinds of relationships and we look at others as, as really significantly unimportant and you see that in that gospel lesson today from Mark 3, 20 to 35. The crowd comes around. They keep coming and keep coming so that he, Jesus and the disciples are not even able to eat. And when his family hears about it, they went out to restrain him. For people were saying, he's gone out of his mind. Huh? Who was saying that? Why were they saying that? What did they mean when they said that? And then the scribes come down from Jerusalem and they say he has Beelzebul and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. In other words, he's a, he's a true false prophet from the pit of hell. And he called them to him and spoke in parables and he said, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And that we sort of what we discovered in the... Um, civil war in the 1860s and if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided he cannot stand but his end will come but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man then indeed the house can be plundered and so he, he's saying you, you this isn't what you're saying doesn't make any logical sense and again here it is there's this zero-sum game that they're playing here if, if people are going out to him, if he's becoming popular, then I'm losing something. And, and that was how John the Baptist differed from them. 
He said, he must increase and I must decrease. But but he didn't see that as losing. He didn't see that the world is a zero-sum game. He saw God's kingdom coming as the only sum that mattered. That God's glory was the only thing that mattered. And if God's glory is the only th- thing that matters, then you don't worry about all this other stuff. And so John the Baptist was able to step down in a way the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and all the other leaders were not able to do because it, it was going to cost them something for Jesus to be exalted. And so here in this particular place, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit through which he has done these things and where they're ascribing this this work that Jesus is doing to Beelzebul, he says those can't have forgiveness, but he's guilty of an eternal sin. If you ascribe the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, then, then you have committed a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he is sort of unable at some level to defend himself. And so Jesus, who is also in the Trinity, this shows you something of the love of the tr- within the Trinity, is Jesus is really upset that they're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit in a way that says, you can't be forgiven for that. You can say anything you want about me, he says, but you can't be forgiven for blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And they already knew that they couldn't blaspheme against the Father because of the covenant relationship that they had. And so he says, you can't be forgiven the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's just all one. That ain't going to work. You can't play that game. But, but, but it's like if somebody said something about me, most of the time I don't care what they say about me. But if you say something about somebody I love, I'm coming after you. And, and that's exactly what Jesus is, is getting at here. He says, then his mother and his brothers and sisters came. They Standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and, and the, a crowd was sitting around him. They said, oh, hey, your mother and brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? And looking at those who sat around him, he says, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. These were there because they wanted to understand more. They wanted to know more. They wanted to grow. His mother and brother and sisters were there for a totally different reason. And so in this moment, the only people who were truly important were the people there for the right reasons. And so there's a there was a jealousy, obviously, against him. In the same way that there was jealousy against Moses, the same way Miriam and Aaron <laughs> were jealous about Moses and challenged his leadership. And that's when... She, Miriam, is afflicted with leprosy for a season of time. And so it, it's, in, but, but what was Moses' reaction to that? Moses' reaction was basically, I didn't seek any of this to start with. Um, I, I'm not exalting myself. And, and he cried out for his sister and his brother in the same way that he cried out continually for the people of Israel, even, the, even when they came as challengers to him. He, he we know he didn't actually seek this out. We know that God had to had to force him to take on the leadership of the people. He made every excuse in the world why he couldn't do it. And, and God said, basically, all that, all the excuses you give me, make you perfect for the role that I need you for. You're not equipped to do that. You're not able to do that. You can't do any of those things necessary to lead 600,000 people. You just can't. But... Your confession that you can't, that's the humility of Moses, that your confession that you can't do these things is exactly the reason you're the perfect person to do it. Because you're not in this for glory and credit. You're not, you're not in it for the wrong reasons. He might have been 40 years before that when he decided to go out and, and align himself with the Israelites by 
killing the Egyptian taskmaster who was beating an Israelite. He was ready in his mind to step into the leadership role, but then the next time he goes out, there's two Israelites fighting each other, and he tells them to knock it off. And they said, who made you ruler and judge over us? And then he thought, I'm in deep trouble because somebody's going to tell him about what happened with that Egyptian now. So he might have been ready to do it, but he, but, but he wasn't the leader God needed at that moment. He had to go and tend sheep for 40 years in order that he could then learn to go and, well, tend God's sheep be the shepherd of his flock he had to shepherd the flock of his father-in-law for 40 years before he was actually prepared to be the kind of leader God wanted one who was willing to do things God's way and one who was willing to love his people enough to get on his knees and plead even when God was angry for his people and never seeking his own glory because he would say if you're going to do that if you're going to kill them all now don't no 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 you're not going to start again with me Uh, uh-uh. end it now because I ain't going to do it He never wanted to move on without the people. He never called God to come in judgment against the people. He pled for their forgiveness. Even in the case of the um, golden calves, every time they came against him, he pleaded for them. And so that's the kind of love that we're to have for our neighbors. That's the kind of love that God's leaders are to have for the people who come against them as well. It's not about us. It's about God's glory. And that's exactly what, what God tells Samuel in this passage from 1 Samuel 8, 4 to 20. All the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, which is where Samuel was from, and said to him, You're old, and your sons don't follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us like other nations. That had to hurt. You're not going to be with us much longer, and your sons are terrible. In fact, what they're basically saying is, you remember the first time you heard God's voice when you were a boy in the temple? You heard God's voice telling you that that Eli hadn't watched over his sons and they had become evil and, and there was a danger there because they were leading the people astray. They were leading people to lose sight of God's holiness. And so judgment was on the house of Eli. Yeah, you are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. That, that had to ring deep in the soul of Samuel. Have I failed in the same way that Eli did? Has my house been rejected? And so they say, appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations because we don't trust your sons to do the right thing. The people had that understanding and knowledge and so they became the voice of God to Samuel here when in saying the same things God said to Samuel when he was a young man. They, they're asking for somebody to come between them and God. And they don't trust his sons to do that. And they, they know about the period of the judges. They knew they needed somebody to rule over them because in Judges 21-25, the very last verse of that book, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And they knew that was a mess. And that wasn't a good thing at all. And so they come here and they they say we we want a king because we don't know what the order of succession is but if it's your sons they're the wrong people and so they ask for this king they've always wanted a a mediator somebody to get between them and god because because of the fear of the lord and so the fear of the lord is a right thing but but it, it can get out of control and that's what happened in exodus 20 
they asked Moses to be mediator because of their fear of God. They had seen that he was for them because they saw that they didn't suffer from the plagues that were visited on Egypt that became the catalyst for them to be able to leave Egypt. And yet they, they come to the mountain and, and there needs to be the fear of the Lord. They need to, that, that's a proper thing, but, but you can't let that run out of control. You can't let it run and be the only thing you feel. They could have felt incredibly loved and blessed because God had delivered him from the hand of the Egyptians and provided him for in the wilderness. And then he was making this covenant with them at Sinai. And the covenant was, I'm going to be your king. I'm the Lord, your God, the one who brought you up out of Egypt. Therefore, here are the laws of my kingdom. And those are the Ten Commandments. Those are not the only laws. But they're the first ten. And at the end of that, the people were so afraid of what they saw and what they heard. They saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoke. They were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Don't fear. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. They, they wanted separation. They, they feared Moses. That they were afraid because of the shining face of Moses whenever he went and met with God. That, that caused them great fear because God's, it was, there was a representation of God's glory on his face. And so they had fear of Moses at that time. They, they really did. I mean, that didn't stop them from challenging him from time to time. But, but they knew that Moses had been in the, in the presence of God. And that meant something really powerful about Moses because he survived those encounters and came back with God's glory all over him. And here the people come and they ask Samuel to appoint for them a leader, just as, as Moses himself had appointed a leader for the people, right? I mean, because that, that's what God told him to do. We'll get to that whenever we get to this little passage in here. But, but the people here, they come to Samuel, and it's a pretty bold request. And, and what's interesting is, is that if you go back a few chapters, or go forward a few chapters, in 1 Samuel 16, when he anoints David... He goes to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come sacrificed to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. I mean, it's, they were frightened of the Lord's representative because they knew that God spoke through him and to him. And that caused fear and respect. But here, they want something like that, but they don't have any idea what they're asking for here. So they asked for this one to come and govern like other nations. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people. Which is a really odd thing for God to say, because you're supposed to obey his voice. But here, he will obey God's voice by doing exactly this. Listen to the voice of the people, because that was a commandment. In all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you. Nope, they've rejected me from being king over them. And they rejected it partly because of fear. But they also rejected it because it's, it's a dangerous thing to fall in the hands of the living God. They rejected him be, because of, of their great fear of the Lord. But that fear had not changed into love. And that's what changes everything. And that's why the, the cross of Christ is so important. Because it's the love of God. And now I can love this God. David knew that intuitively. David knew how much God loved him even before, I believe, that he was anointed to be the king. 
I believe David knew how much God loved him even before that, and I believe that's exactly the reason he was, or he was made the king. God sees the heart. And what God needed as a king was a man after God's own heart and a man who loved God and understood the love of God towards him because he could display that grace and share that love and teach that love to the people, and they would see it in his life. He says, just as they've done to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so now they're doing today. Now then listen to my voice only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king that will reign over them. And, and Saul, Samuel then speaks, and he tells them exactly what kind of king they're going to have, and that is they're going to take everything from you. They're going to treat you like chattel. They're going to treat you like slaves. They're only going to extract from you what you have value to give them, your labor, your stuff. Because he's going to take some of your fields, going to take grain, going to take your vineyards, give it to his officers and courtiers. He'll take your male and female slaves, the best of your cattle and your donkeys, and he'll put them to work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. I mean, these are tithes, right? But God's not calling them to be slaves. And in that day, you'll cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we're determined to have a king over us. Listen to this. So that we may have be like other nations, and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's the whole point of the nation of Israel, not to be like other nations. They want to blend in. They don't like this unique status they have. It's somewhat embarrassing because they're different from the rest of the world. And so what they want is they want to be like other nations. They want that king to go out and to govern us and to go out before us and fight our battles. That's right. They're not replacing Samuel in those roles. They're replacing God because he was the one who fights the battles. They fought the battles and won the battles only because God went before them. That was the whole issue. But in in Numbers 27, there's a proper way to do succession, right? So Moses speaks to the Lord in Numbers 27 saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over his congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them and lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. You know, there's a condemnation of, of Samuel in some way here because Samuel's not eternal. And so Moses knows that he's dying and he knows that God needs to raise somebody up. He's not necessarily going to raise up one of his boys and make them the head of this nation now. No, that's not the way it worked. That wasn't the way it worked for him. And so Samuel here has neglected in some level to, to do succession. He should have come before the Lord and said, hey, I need to know who's next. He'd groom that person, get him ready for the job. But he didn't. Moses did, which makes Moses a leader like none other. But then all of these things, all this language of king and, and what kind of king, it points to one thing, and it points to Jesus. That king is a shepherd. He is the great good shepherd the one after God's own heart, more so than even David could have ever imagined. But we can't do this, and we can't allow him to become king until we fully situate ourselves and our minds and our hearts in his kingdom. So long as they're rooted and grounded in earth and in earthly things, we're not grounded enough for this to be anything other than a zero-sum game. And so our call is to step out of that grounding because it's wrong, and have our minds transformed. Allow him to renew our minds so that we no longer see this world as a zero-sum game. We do see 
those things that are not seen, and we seek for that eternal weight of glory that's beyond all measure. We seek it not only for ourselves, but for others as well, because none of us, the glory we each receive, the blessing we receive from God, is not taking it away from somebody else to give to us. That's not how it works. Nope. Nope. God's love is limitless and infinite. There's way more than enough to go around. So if we get our minds out of this world, then we can understand what Paul says. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And that's the promise. And if we get our minds there, and we set our minds on that, we recognize the reality that this stuff is all passing away, then we can search for, seek out, and seek to be those who give glory to God in all that we do in order that we might share in that eternal weight of glory.